0: He first prepared for him a world of useful and pleasant things for man's sustenance and delight. They were made for man's use, but they were meant always to be external to the man and subservient to the man. In the deep heart of man was a shrine where only God was worthy to come. Within man was God. Without man, a thousand gifts that God had showered upon him, but sin has brought complications and has made the very gifts of God a potential ruin for our soul. And we all know how true that can be. If we're holding too tightly to people or places or positions or money or things, Jesus says to us on the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there's where your heart is going to be. And so why do we often have little peace within our hearts? It's because of the fact that we have the wrong treasure on our heart. Things are always fighting To be in that position. Things are always fighting to become first place. And what does that mean for us? Is it wrong to enjoy these gifts from God? And is it wrong to protect these gifts from God? And I think no. But as women, I'm speaking to myself as well. We have to remember as we go throughout our whole lives. That it is my job to be learning how to loosen my grip on these gifts from God how to loosen them so that I will always be in God's will, walking in his purposes, that he will always be the love of my life, that he will always be the Lord of my life. That way I will be in his will and walk according to his plans and I won't get sidetracked. I uh, was—I couldn't help but think about my story of Mary and Ted just studying this about Rebecca. Um, just because some of the things remind me of it. I met Ted in Colorado. I was at a Young Life camp. I was 19 years old. I remember it very clearly. I was sitting in this log cabin with a bunch of the leadership, and there was this guy across the room, and I was checking him out. He had on his cowboy hat and his chaps. He looked like a cowboy the whole week. He was kind of running the camp with uh, Tom Wilson. And I I nudged somebody next to me and said, hey, See that guy over there, how old is he? (laughs) And they said, 26. And I said, man, he is too old. He's 26 years old. But then I slowly changed my mind as the time went on. And uh, he'd come around to the snack shop where I worked and get donuts every day. And pretty soon I was putting the donuts in his mailbox. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty pitiful. And then he drove from Texas to South Holland, Illinois to take me out and spent a weekend with me. And, and I want to say for him to be coming back and forth. I'm in junior college living with my family. He's coming staying in a hotel at first because my parents are totally freaked out about this whole thing. So then they slowly invite him to come into our house. We never normally date. I'm just coming here to visit. He's coming there to visit. Next thing I know, um, I have a ring on my finger, and I know I'm supposed to marry him. In fact, some people say this, and this really was true. I was in Colorado. I actually had another boyfriend at the time, kind of hanging out with Ted, though. (laughs) And and I was standing, uh, looking at Ted outside in a field one day with a bunch of people around us, and he was talking to someone, and I got this sort of word that says this is who you're going to marry. Now, I have to tell you when you're at a Young Life camp, you don't get to hang out with a guy very much if you're in leadership. I mean, we saw each other very sporadically. And I thought that is the craziest thought I have ever had. But it was something that God was doing on my heart. So for me to get engaged at age 19, my friends thought I had lost my mind I'd never been to a wedding. <laughs> what do you do at a wedding? My mother didn't know what to do with the wedding, so I'm planning this wedding. <laughs> if you look at my wedding pictures, I've got this wreath of flowers around my head. <laughs> and it was hard. I was engaged, but I, I kind of walked around like this because people thought I had lost my mind, and frankly, I pretty much thought the same thing. <laughs> we were married. I remember uh, Ted had driven up. He had been working at a Young Life Camp Windy, Camp Windy Gap when he came the week of our wedding, and he came to uh, my house, and he had on a tuxedo that he'd been wearing in skits at Windy Gap. LAUGHTER <laughs> Fortunately, he did not wear it in the wedding. But I remember when the wedding was over, he uh, came out. We were leaving. We were not on camels like Rebecca. He had an old white tornado with a white rickety trailer behind it. And I put all my earthly treasures, which I think were a few plants from the backyard that I'd grown, <laughs> and some clothes. <laughs> He didn't need the the, uh, the, uh, trailer, trailer, he didn't need the trailer. Anyway, we drove off and I wept and I wept and I wept until he probably was sick and tired of me weeping. But I was leaving behind every single thing that I knew, from my friends to my family. I had never lived outside of my home. But in my heart, as immature as I was, and as um, young as I was, and didn't know what I was doing, I did know one thing, that if I was to stay in the will of God, he wanted me married to Ted, and he wanted me in Texas. And you have those stories. You have those stories where you think, you know, I just knew what I was supposed to do. It was hard. I had to loosen my grip on the things that meant the most to me. If we are set on pursuing God, if we would know God intimately, he asks us to loosen our grip, and i wrote down three ways we can do that. Commit our treasures to him on your outline. And nobody illustrates this better than this woman in Luke 21. Look on your verse sheet. Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury and he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. She committed these few little coins to god that was her treasure she committed it to god and secondly on your outline she relinquished control and ownership of these treasures she realized the money is not mine this is a gift from god on loan to me first corinthians 4 says this on your verse sheet what do you have that you didn't receive from god Since you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it from God at all? Thirdly, we trust that God is enough to meet our needs. And I believe that's what this widow was doing when she was so faithful to give this gift to God. I had a friend that used to like to throw out a phrase if I would go shopping with her. If someone said, wow, you're out there shopping, you're excited, I need that. She would always say, need that or want that. You've heard a party pooper, she was the shopping pooper. Now, I realize now she was right. This is really what attitude we have to have when we consider all these wonderful gifts that God's given us. I don't need them. I enjoy them, but I don't need, in order to live out God's will in my life, I don't need this job or this money or this car or this person in my life. All I really need is God. Look at Psalm 23. On your verse sheet, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Philippians 4, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And this is really where Rebecca's story begins because she would come into a family that understood the importance of these truths. And she would come into the family doing these very things. Like us, this family had lots of earthly treasures. Like us, this family had a calling from God. So we're going to start with Abraham. About 20 years before Rebecca would meet her future father-in-law, he would have a huge test. I would call it a treasure test. His call from God was that he had been called away from the, his land and his people to begin a nation set apart to worship The one true God. Incredible. The nations were worshiping multiple false gods. This would be the beginning of the Jewish nation. And so Abraham leaves Mesopotamia and he travels 500 miles. He obeys God. He's in the land of Canaan. And then God makes a covenant with Abraham to bring him descendants and land and blessings. And Isaac is a promise to be his heir. And so Abraham and Sarah wait for this boy that God has promised to give them, And they wait, and they wait, and they get older and older. And pretty soon Abraham is 100 years old. And God blesses them with this son named Isaac. And Abraham could look at that baby and say, In you, this covenant from God, will be fulfilled. This mighty nation that worships and serves the living, one true God will come from you. And I can imagine how Isaac captured his parents' hearts in their old age. They'd be out by the campfire, and there'd be little, uh, little Isaac running around by the tents, and they'd be reminded of God's goodness. And they watched him grow up. He was a boy of promise. God had spoken to both Abraham and Sarah specifically about him. So when they looked at him, they saw the covering of God's blessings on him. What a joy in their life. On your outline, Abraham's treasure was his promised son, Isaac. Now, the gift of Isaac now has grown to be in his 20s. And God plans to test Abraham, had Abraham allowed Isaac to take God's place on the throne of Abraham's heart. Look at Genesis 22 with me. Verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Now, I thought it was interesting how God wants to remind Abraham just what a great treasure Isaac is. Take your son, your only son, the son you love, the son you named Laughter because of all the joy he gave you, and give him back to me. Would Abraham's grasp on Isaac be too great? If this were up to me at this point, if this were my wonderful son Tyler, I would have dyed his hair and put a mustache on him and ran and gone and hid in a cave, hoping that God would forget about it or change his mind. But if we read the rest of the story, it is such a great story of faith. It says, Abraham got up the next morning early early to do what God asked him to do and he went out and he got the wood and he got a donkey and he got his servants and he got his treasure and he started a three-day journey to the place that God had called him to three days thinking about what God had called him to do I don't think he was singing camp songs along the way I think in obedience there is emotion as well. And so for these 50 miles, they go to Moriah. It was the very area where one day Solomon would build the temple of God in Jerusalem. Look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Okay, circle that word, we. He's leaving, but he believes in his faith that somehow his treasure, Isaac, is going to come back with him, even if none of this made any sense. God planned the future through my son Isaac, and yet God wants Isaac sacrificed. Abraham believed Isaac would return with him. Abraham believed. If God wanted to, he could raise my son from the dead. Look at Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, "In Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Okay, Abraham's got the knife, but with this sweet question, Isaac sort of stabs a knife into his father's heart. He doesn't understand yet. Abraham hasn't explained to him what God has called him to do. We see Abraham's faith again. God's going to provide. And so then Abraham takes his greatest earthly treasure, he ties him up, He gets an altar of wood that he makes. He lays Isaac on top of it. He stands next to it. He raises his hand with a knife in it and prepares to take Isaac's life. And then God intervenes. Look at verse 11. An angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you haven't withheld from me Your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham's grip on his son Isaac was loose enough that he was obedient to God. In his response, he obeyed what God called him to do and he demonstrated one of these things we talked about at the beginning, how to keep our grip loose. He demonstrated, I've committed Isaac to God. He doesn't belong to me. He belongs to God. And then Abraham will name this place Yahweh Yaira, which means God will provide. And even... Better interpretation is, God will see to it. God's in control. What a great thing for us to remember. When I think things look really out of control, God will see to it. He will provide. One man said this, as God has saved our souls, as God has made us his own, we can be assured that with the whole of our lives, God will see to it. I have a friend who, uh, I guess a year and a half ago, called me, and everything in her life was falling apart. Family relationships, a move, and then the worst news of all, her father was found out to have um, a very serious illness. And so we talked about it and and decided, you know, all we can do (laughs) is commit these things to God. And pray that somehow God will work good in these situations. And after months, it was an amazing thing. Her father did not know the Lord. He came to Christ immediately after they began praying. He became on fire for God and his last six months with his family was spent talking about the goodness of God and it restored family and it brought people together and God took that treasure home. But they knew where he was going because they had committed all those things to him. God saw to it. We want to look at Isaac real quick. What can we learn about him? Isaac's call from God is to be used by God to fulfill uh, God's promise to Abraham of many descendants and a holy nation. And I think Isaac's treasure on your outline is his appointed future. He grew up hearing the story over and over again. You were promised by God. You were a miracle. We were really old really old, and you were born. You were a miracle. You made us laugh. That's why we named you Isaac. You're special. You're going to bring about a mighty nation. You will inherit this land. Your descendants will be many. So why wasn't Isaac running for his life when he was in his 20s walking up Mount Moriah? We never see him. We don't know for sure if Abraham ever totally explained what was going to happen. But you know what? When you're lying on wood, you're tied up, and your dad's standing next to you with a knife, you pretty well figure out what's going to happen next. He doesn't run. He's willing. He submits himself. I think he believed... My father follows God. This must be from God. His response is that he submitted to his father's will. He submitted to his God's will. And in doing that, he demonstrated that I'm relinquishing control of my life. My grip is loose. He proved that by lying there with his father standing over him. If we skip a few years, and Isaac's about 40 years old. His mother, Sarah, had died about three years earlier at the age of 127. Abraham is old. He's ready for Isaac to have a wife. He understands now's the time for God's covenant to continue. And so he calls in his servant. His servant is probably, most people think, a man named Eliezer, who's been with Abraham forever. He's actually probably 85 years old. So when you read that story of everything he did, it makes it even more fun to think how faithful he was. And he was 85 years old. He says, okay, Eliezer, get my son, uh, a wife from my homeland, 500 miles away. Of course, Eliezer's thinking, why not find a wife in Canaan? Or why don't I just take Isaac back there? He can find his own wife. Both of those things would have denied the reality of the promises of God. Abraham was called to live in Canaan and be the father of a mighty nation, but never was he supposed to take on the Canaanite people into his family, these people that worshipped false gods. And so Abraham is persistent about sticking to the plan of God. No, you have to go back to my homeland and you have to get a relative. When Eliezer questions how can he find some strange woman and convince her to come back with him, Abraham says it again, Yahweh Yireh, God will see to it. He has my whole life. God will see to it. And Eliezer places his hand under Abraham's thigh and agrees to this oath, meaning this was a very serious oath. And I think it can mean a couple of things, one more than another, but some people think maybe this intimate touch from Eliezer meant, okay, if I don't keep the oath, your descendants, Abraham, can avenge me for not following this oath we're taking. But I think what some other people think as well I think it was a gesture that Abraham was saying, remember the promise, Eliezer, many descendants. And some people even believe it was a gesture saying, many descendants and a final Savior to come from me. In fact, one man said this, this was a godly oath by a godly man, taken and administered in the light of his greatest hope, the coming Savior. In fact, John tells us, Jesus tells us in John 8, that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Look on your verse sheet. We'll connect these two. Genesis 12, 3. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed, Abraham. And then Jesus says in John 8, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. And he was glad. He saw that day through his son Isaac, the beginning of the covenant of a holy nation that would culminate in the birth and the life of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. You might write on your um, outline next to the word Rebecca. There's two things this story of Rebecca demonstrates. First of all, the providence of God. He is about to orchestrate, God is, all the events to continue on with his promises to Abraham. In fact, when you read the story, you might want to go back some time and circle. Every time you see the word God's kindness or loving kindness, circle it. Because that is demonstrating more than just God's kindness. That word means loyal love or loyal to the covenant. So every time Eliezer talks about God, he's saying, don't forget your loving kindness, your loyal love to Abraham, your loyalty to the covenant. And it's also, secondly, demonstrates the story of Rebecca our responsibility to be faithful to the will of God. We can't be clinging to our treasures and be faithful to the will of God in our lives. Abraham was faithful by calling in Eliezer saying, hey, okay, go find a wife outside of these Canaan women. Eliezer was faithful to his holy commission and Rebecca would prove faithful as she stepped in to the plan of God for her life. Her calling was to become the wife of Isaac and together serve the living God. So Eliezer heads out, and when he reaches Mesopotamia with his ten camels, which, by the way, to have ten camels was a great sign of wealth, he would have kind of stood out among the people around the well. The Bible says that the sun is setting. They are exhausted. He has his camels kneeling, which is what they would do to have them rest alongside um, this Well. He is outside the town of Nahor, which is the name of one of Abraham's brothers, next to the town of Haran, which is another one of Abraham's brothers. And in early evening, the women come out to draw water. And we picture this faithful servant standing near the water, diligently praying to God according to his loyal love. His loyalty to the covenant. And he prays this, that whoever he asks for a drink will also say, Okay, and let me get your camels a drink. Now, that is a huge prayer of faith. To think a woman is actually going to say that when you have ten camels, each camel drinking about 25 gallons of water at least. A huge thing for him to pray. It required a lot of faith. But when we read the text, it says, As daylight fades, we see Eliezer, and he says to God, See, I'm standing near the spring. And when you interpret that correctly, it says, See, God, I've taken my stand. I am resolved that you've heard my prayer, and I'm going to have faith. In your loyal love that you will answer my prayer. And I think his lips could have been moving as he prayed in his heart. And before the last word comes off of his lips, God answers immediately. Rebecca comes walking out with the women. She's probably got her big stone jar with her. She is beautiful. She is unmarried. She is young. She is a virgin. And she happens to be Isaac's second cousin. Her grandfather and her great-grandfather are brothers of Abraham, Nahor and Haran. And I just love it. I love that when we pray specifically, God is faithful to those things, like your wonderful testimony this morning about your daughter. It made me think about, I've had some really neat times in my life when I pray some specific things, and about four years ago, Ted and I took a group on a tour of some of the places that Paul uh, went on. We went to Greece and Ephesus and places like that, Philippi. But there were like three days we're on this little cruise ship to get to Patmos and some other places. And uh, the cruise ship in Greece, it was not the carnival cruise ship, but it was still... A great blessing, a great joy to be there. But I noticed on, like, one of the first days we were there, there was this group of kids that were students, summer students. And they were all just having the time of their lives. But there was this one guy that was really tall and really skinny and had really crazy hair. He sort of looked like Napoleon Dynamite, if you guys have seen that. That's what he looked like. And I would just every now and then kind of run into that group and it would just kind of break my heart because they were all laughing and talking to each other and this guy was always not joining in i don't know if they didn't like him or he didn't know how to join in and so i just prayed for him a couple days on the trip and uh, then I, i decided because god put him on my heart i said you know god i'm you know if you would us to talk with this guy. I mean, we're on this big ship and he's always with this creep. You know, have him just be all by himself, alone somewhere one day. And then we'll go talk with him. The very next day, Ted and I are out on this thing. There's a million people. We decide to go back to our room. We step to the side of the ship, which has, you know, these long, narrow walkways with the railing looking out. There is not one person on that walkway but Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> Standing by himself, looking out to sea. And I said, Ted, we've got to go talk to this kid. I hadn't told, told Ted this story, so he's like, what? I said, we are supposed to talk to this boy. I just prayed this prayer. And he said, well, let's go. So I'd like to say some huge spiritual thing happened. Uh, We had a great time talking with him. I don't know if maybe he just needed to know he was lovable. Maybe he was miserable and maybe we encouraged him. I'm going to have to leave that with God. And it got good. What a great, specific answer to my prayer. And we kind of blessed him. And he went on his way. And it reminds me of Eliezer's story here. Look at verse 17 in chapter 24. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord. And she lowered her jar quickly. And after she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they finish drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the lord had made his journey successful." Not only does she say, I'll water your camels, she goes beyond that. I'll water them until they're satisfied, until they've had enough. And she's polite and enthusiastic and hardworking and generous. And the word that people have been saying a lot, which jumped out at me, is she's fast. (laughs) She quickly, quickly does this, quickly does that, quickly does this. Runs back to the well. This takes quite a bit of time. Eliezer standing meditating on what God is doing here when he finds out her father is descended from the line of Abraham and that she has invited him to stay in her house the bible tells us he fell to his knees and worship of God understanding This is the work of God. I have a dear friend in this church who was telling me last year how her husband had been praying for specific ministry opportunity so diligently. And one day God's answer was yes. And they were back home and she was calling his name because she wanted to talk about it. And she came around the corner and came in the living room and there he was on his knees praising God. For what he had done. That's our response. When we see God answer our prayers. We should always be so overwhelmed. That whatever we're doing. We stop. And we fall down. And we worship God. And you know what if Eliezer hadn't done that? What if he had not attributed. Any of these things to God. I don't think Rebecca would have either. Eliezer was used by God to encourage her faith so she could walk away from these earthly treasures that she had. When they get back to their home, to Rebecca's home, is still so excited he has to tell this wonderful story again. He tells the story of Abraham. He tells the story of Isaac. And as Rebecca listens, she begins to understand, it's my story now. It's also my story. It's going to change her life forever. There is food laid out on the floor on rugs. That's how they ate. There's probably stone jars of wine. And there is a family sitting around this stranger with their eyes wide open, listening to these stories. And it's a calling of Abraham to a calling of their daughter to a calling of their sister, Rebecca, And when he finished the story, I bet you could have heard a pin drop. If there were pins back then, you would have heard it. In fact, um, they say to each other, what can we add to that? So be it. She goes with you. This is from God. Eliezer is all about God's business, so he's ready to leave the next morning. Laban and the mother ask for more time. We're not exactly sure why. They might need to get accustomed to her leaving. Some people believe this 10 days really equals to 10 months. Some believe it equals to a year. And Eliezer's like, whoa, we know it's of God. What is the delay here? We're going back. I also think if you read about Laban later on, what is Laban really interested in? Money. So he's really impressed with the wealth, that these things and these gifts that he's brought. In fact, when Laban runs to meet Eliezer at the well, it says he noticed his camels, the jewelry, the gold. And so I think he also might have been wanting to keep this guy around for some of those reasons. But that's just a guess. Then they have a novel idea. Hey, let's ask Rebecca. (laughs) Now this wasn't done much. So they do. And I think maybe Laban and the mother thought she'll say, give me some time. This tells you how God's been working on Rebecca's heart. She comes into the room. The young woman that God is pursuing, they look her in the eyes. Will you go with this man? She's heard about God's work in Abraham's life. She's heard about the miracle of Isaac. She's heard the prayer of Eliza and of Eleazar and how she fit into that. She knows what God's will is for her life and so she says, "I will go." And they do. But first we have to think are her treasures greater at this point than her faith? On your outline, you can list whatever treasures you might think she would have had at that point. Definitely family and definitely home and country. I would write real big the word security. She was leaving everything that she knew. Her response is that she believed in the plan of God and so she trusted God with her future. She wasn't holding too tightly to her treasures. And I just love this thought. Just like Abraham in the same area heard the same call from God, leave your land, leave your people to serve the one true living God. Now, Rebecca hears the same thing, and in word and deed, she is an Abraham. And she goes to become a part of God's covenant plan, committing her future to him, relinquishing her control with her own plans, and trusting God with her future. Look at verse sixty three in chapter twenty four. Then Isaac went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up he saw camels approaching. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel, and let me tell you the got down is means quickly. (laughs) She is fast. She quickly got down from her camel, asked the servant, who's that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebecca, so she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This needs to be a movie scene. We picture a field with the sun setting, Isaac walking among the tall grass, camels coming from a distance, a beautiful woman on a camel jumping off. She takes her veil, which is built to cover her whole body. She wraps it around herself in modesty and respect. She is meeting her betrothed, who has probably been meditating on her, probably also been in prayer about Eliezer's mission. And he loved her. But what I love the best about this story is, but not before Eliezer told the story again. And what I love about that is, I think Rebecca was right there. So they began their union together, listening again to the loyal love of God together in worship before he took her as his wife. The result of her obedience would be that Rebecca would be used by God to build a nation that served the living God. And when it says here she was brought into Sarah's tent, that's very meaningful. Sarah was the matriarch of this covenant promise. Rebekah, by stepping into that tent, becomes the matriarch, and the patriarch goes from Abraham to Isaac together to fulfill God's plan. She would bring companionship and comfort to Isaac, and Rebekah would love and be loved in a union That would be very blessed by God. We can see the special union when they are faced with her barrenness. I think Rebecca was barren about 20 years. And uh, you're thinking, okay, we had this promise. I came here for this reason. They had faith. They took these concerns to God. They cared for each other. Isaac prayed for her in her barrenness. And God's sovereignty blesses them with twins Esau and Jacob. And God even comes to Rebekah because she's praying when they're struggling in her womb. And he says, You have two nations within you. The older son, Esau, would represent the Edomites. The younger son, Jacob, would actually have his name changed by God himself to be Israel. One would serve the other. The older, Esau, would serve the younger. And Jacob would come out holding his brother's heel. So they named him Jacob. It means heel catcher. But the other name of it is trickster, which is a uh, adequate name for Jacob as he ran from God and made a lot of mistakes the early part of his life. I want us to look at chapter 25, verse 27. The boys grew up, And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, no one in the Bible is perfect except for Jesus. We're going to learn some wonderful lessons here. Showing favoritism is one sign that you've got your treasures a little too tight in your hands. So when the time came for these young men to be blessed, and let me tell you, a blessing was a benediction and a prediction, a holy prophecy of blessing spoken on someone that would come true later in their life. And when that time happened, Rebecca loved Jacob more. She would want Jacob to get that blessing. But secondly, I think Rebecca also remembered God saying to her, Hey, The older will serve the younger. And so she realizes, I want Jacob to have that blessing. Isaac probably knew those same words that God had spoken to Rebekah. He had prayed for her to have children. They were close. They loved each other. I think she had told Isaac. And Isaac either forgot or didn't care or ignored it because guess who he liked the most? Esau. Not so much because he was a hunter himself, he wasn't, but it always seems to revolve around food. (laughs) He liked the taste of venison, he liked the taste of whatever they ate out there, and so he liked his son to go out and hunt for him. And also, it seems that Isaac ignores the character, the spiritual character of Esau. One man described him as spiritually dull. And one day he came in and Jacob, who was the trickster, said, I'll give you some of this stew I made if you sell me your birthright as the firstborn. And he's like, whatever, okay. Eats his stew. He also marries a lot of Canaanite, well, a couple of Canaanite women, so he's got heathen wives. Isaac seems to kind of overlook those things. Knowing these things, even so, Rebecca knows the goodness and faithfulness, the loyal love of this covenant God. She should have gone to God. She should have spoken with Isaac because never is it okay to be what she becomes in this next part of the story. But We're going to remember the good things, too, after this. Okay, she gives us a blueprint. We're going to go through these real quick. If um, we want to know, do I hold on to my treasures too tightly? Here's what we look for. First of all, fear. On your outline, you can write down fear. Fear will take over our hearts. I believe Rebecca overheard Esau's um, talking with his father. She overhears that he's going to be blessed. Jacob says, Isaac says, go out and prepare me a meal. And so some people think that Isaac's taste for gain controlled his will. That seemed at this point to be pretty important to him. Rebecca forgot the faithfulness of God and became afraid. Look at Psalm 118. Here's what we should do. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And from my distress means from my tight place. The Lord sets me in a large place. Secondly, the next thing that happens is manipulation. We have to start manipulating things in order to protect our treasures. And that's exactly what she does. Um, in chapter 27, verse 6, she tells her son this. We aren't, won't read it because we're running out of time. Go get the food. Do everything that your father asked Esau to do, which was to go out, find him a meal, bring it in, and receive the blessing. She manipulates Her son Jacob to do that instead. Proverbs 3 says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. The third step is deception. Jacob says, hey, I might get discovered. And so it's the mother who deceives and says, okay, let me put Esau's clothes on you. It says she did it. She put animal skins on Jacob because Esau had hairy arms. She cooked the meal Esau would have cooked and handed it to Jacob. It was a job well done. Isaac is deceived. Proverbs 14, though, tells us there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And finally, the last thing that happens is division. When we're clinging to our earthly treasures, we are leaving a path of divisiveness around us because things and other people get in the way of our other relationships. In this case, Esau harbors great hatred, of course, for his brother Jacob when he discovers he has missed the blessing. He falls down trembling. He is so upset and then hateful. Jacob becomes afraid of his own brother Esau. And I probably didn't do a lot for Isaac and Rebekah's relationship. I'm not sure about that, but that would be my guess. And then Rebekah has Isaac send Jacob away so that his brother Esau will not kill him. And guess what? This treasure she was holding too tightly, she sent him away and she never saw him again the rest of her life. Instead of clinging to her God, she had been clinging to her treasure. Commit our treasures to the Lord. Relinquish our control and our ownership of them. Trust that God will see to it. One day Jesus was on a hillside. I'm going to close with this. He's in Galilee and he's discussing this very subject with a bunch of treasure seekers and he says this. At the time when he's talking, there are birds in the air, there are lilies on the field, and he points up and he says, Look at these birds. God takes care of them. And look at these lilies. Have you ever seen anything dressed so beautifully? So why are you clinging to your treasures and worrying, doesn't God love you so much more than these things? He knows what you need. Jesus said, seek God. Seek his kingdom. Seek his righteousness. And then everything you need, God will give to you. Doesn't God love you? Doesn't God love you? That's our greatest treasure. And it's the only treasure that will last forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good gifts, but mostly for the incredible gift of your son. And may we walk faithfully with him through this life. May he be our greatest treasure and may we be a blessing. For you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Lynn. I think I forgot to mention last week that my name is Misty Dimon, and I'll be making announcements um, this year. And upstairs this morning, somebody